Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Welcome to the podcast. SLPs have submitted questions about the complexity approach, and I am so incredibly excited to tackle some of those questions with our guest today. I knew she would be able to break down the complexity approach for us, probably better than anyone else, because I've learned all of the practical implementation tips from her. I've been able to implement this with my caseload, and it's been an absolute game changer. And I learned all of this through her amazing site called SL Path, and it includes comprehensive courses as well as so many free resources that make the complexity approach totally doable and approachable, no matter what your caseload looks like. So I can't wait to hear all of her practical tips and strategies. So without further ado, I'm going to go through her bio real quick because it's absolutely amazing. But Jennifer Taps Richard is a speech language pathologist in the San Diego Unified School District and an Indiana University graduate. She provides small group and classroom intervention to caseload and at-risk students. And so she's in the trenches with us, but she's also a coordinator for the Phonology and Articulation Resource Center. She applies research and supports SLPs in articulation and phonological intervention through staff development, consultation, and coaching. She also owns SL Path, like I said, a private company committed to promoting best practices in speech sound disorder intervention through online courses and intensive workshops. And I am so incredibly excited that she's here with us today. So let's dive in. And before we get into all of the juicy content, I'm curious because you're clearly a very busy person, very, very smart with great resources and ideas for all of this. But I'd love to hear a little about you and what led you to do so much work in this area. Well, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to join you on the podcast today. I've just always found linguistics to be fascinating. I'm kind of a, a nerd where, where that's concerned. From the time I was in undergrad, when I first kind of learned the beginning of these principles, I was just kind of blown away by how impactful it can be to teach complex sounds to kids with speech sound disorders. And I remember the first time I heard about it, I was a junior in college in Indiana, And by chance, my father was in town visiting and he was picking me up after the class. When I walked out, he said he thought I I met like Bono or some other rock star or something because I was so excited about the potential for pursuing this kind of work and what it can do for kids to help them become more intelligible and therefore more successful in communicating. So that's what kind of led me to be interested in this from the time I was 19. That's such a great story. I love that. And I got a little bit of chills hearing it because you can totally see your enthusiasm. Help us understand a little bit. What is the complexity approach? I think most SLPs are familiar with the normative approach, the idea that we teach sounds in developmental sequence. That's been a historical practice in our field since really the beginning. Complexity takes this idea and completely turns it on its head. Instead, it advocates teaching phonetically complex non-stimulable, and later mastered sounds. So this is a very different way of approaching helping kids to learn more broadly about the sound system as opposed to one sound at a time. And it's really based on about more than 30 years of research studies, and it applies 
linguistic principles to help SLPs with target selection. So Judith Garrett, who's at Indiana University, my alma mater, was really the first proponent of this approach. And other investigators have looked at this at other universities since then. And if people are interested in reading an excellent article that provides an overview of the complexity approach, Garrett's 2007 article is fantastic. And it'll give you a much bigger sense than I can give its due during this session. But essentially, the idea is that we teach complex targets, especially complex clusters, like SPL as in SPLAT or THR as in THROW. And this helps kids to learn more rapidly about the sound system, thereby helping them become more intelligible more quickly. And essentially, it's not just about the, the treated targets, it's about the entire sound system. So it's really remarkable still, after doing this for 20 plus years, I still get a thrill to see what kind of changes occur in a child's sound system after a few months of working on particular targets. One other thing that I thought might be helpful in talking about what is the complexity approach is just to kind of share the general findings of the body of work of complexity and then also how we've applied it in San Diego Unified in the trenches, basically. So the original research, kids all received, just like most phonological research, individual services and university clinic. The kids were around age four. These are kids who only present with phonological disorders, and that's to keep research more controlled and have fewer variables, just like, you know, we often see with phonological research. So these are not kids who also have language disorders or other kind of learning issues or behavioral issues. And that's pretty much the case with all phonological research. But in looking at the original complexity studies, most kids received about 20 to 25 hours of intervention over 10 weeks, and they increased an average of 20 to 25% in their consonants correct, which is a huge gain in a short amount of time. And that's because of these complex targets. But even with those original studies, Garrett and others posited that these principles may apply to other populations as well, that we could potentially apply them to kids with concomitant language disorder, kids with autism, kids with Down syndrome, kids with mild articulation disorders. And in particular, I wanted to highlight kids with concomitant language disorders because researchers have estimated that as many as 60% of children with phonological disorder also present with expressive language disorder. So that's a huge percentage of the population, and we, of course, want to consider that. But in our district, we've had SLPs applying these principles for more than 15 years, and what we've really strived to do is go across populations, and not only children with phonological disorders, but the kids we see in the real world. So the kids who also have language impairments, kids with autism, Down syndrome, kids who stutter, I mean, you name it, anybody who needs to learn more about the sound system. And so what we've done is we've collected several case studies that have been submitted by various SLPs and not just students that I work with. And I partnered with Jessica Barlow and Philip Combitz from San Diego State University, and we took 32 of those case studies from this heterogeneous group. So these, again, are kids. It's a very mixed group. So some kids had only phonological disorders. Some kids had co-occurring language impairments. We had some bilingual kids. We had a child who stutters. And these kids all received group intervention in the schools, just like we typically provide. And all 32 of these kids received treatment on complex two-element clusters, such as FL 
or a complex re-element cluster such as SPR. And so what we did with this data is we had code data before or at the beginning of the school year versus the end of the school year. And so we analyzed this data to look at a number of measures. And what we found was the children received about 20 to 25 hours on average of intervention, all in groups. And each group had an average of 25% increase in percent consonants correct. So just like the original complexity studies. And this is different conditions because with the original studies, there was a very strict protocol, it was individual and so and very controlled, which is what research needs to do. But the schools are messy <laughs> and we have a million interruptions, but we can still achieve a very high level of increase despite that. And we even broke it down to different groups. So we found a comparable increase for kids who only had phonological disorder versus kids who had phonological disorder and language impairment. We had the same kind of increase for kids under five versus over five. And we also had the same changes for bilingual versus monolingual kids. And so essentially all this tells us that it's possible in the trenches to help kids rapidly increase their intelligibility when we teach them complex sounds. Well, that's amazing. And I love the comparison of the clean research and then the research in the trenches. That's amazing and so helpful. Yes, and, and we were heartened just to see that We've had so many SLPs in our district applying these principles, and people have kind of applied in their own way. The way I also think of it is the target selection, which we'll talk about a little bit later, is kind of the science of it, but how an SLP actually goes about teaching is more the art. So that's the how. And so many people have creative ways of doing that that I would have never thought of and vice versa. But what matters ultimately, is, as we'll talk about, is the target itself. That the target we select is everything. Yeah, no, that's amazing. So helpful too, because you've kind of talked about it a little bit, but why would you choose this approach over another approach? Well, first, I, I recommend applying these principles if we want kids to finish intervention as soon as possible and reduce our caseload, or maybe not reduce it, but manage it more effectively. But the way I always think about different methodologies for phonological intervention is this. All methodologies work, but the difference is the treatment efficiency. So it's more efficient to teach kids broadly about the sound system and deeply given complex targets rather than starting with early sounds and then building and teaching every early sound. If we were to teach every sound and then cluster in sequence, that would take years and years. And kids really don't have that kind of time because we need them to be able to access the curriculum, we need them in the classroom, and you know, if they have co-occurring language impairment, we need to support them with that rather than always working on sounds. And so, you know, those are some really important considerations. But another thing that I think is persuasive is there's a very strong evidence base to support complexity. And so, Amai did a paper in 2006, and he identified five major theoretical perspectives with regard to phonological intervention, including complexity, as one of the five. And he found that there's almost more research on complexity than the other four major methodologies combined. So this is a significant body of evidence that's been amassed over more than 30 years. And so I feel like that's very persuasive as well. And then one other bit of information from research that I found compelling is Baker and McLeod also did a review, and they were trying to identify the number of studies that have been done for different methodologies. And so they found that there was an eight to one ratio for complexity studies as compared to normative studies. 
And so even though the normative approach of teaching sounds and developmental sequence has been a historical practice, there really is very limited evidence to support its efficacy. I think those are important reasons we, we'd want to consider that. But the other thing we want to think about is any target we select, we want that target to have maximum impact on the system. And so, of course, we want kids to learn velars like, like KMG. We want them to have those sounds. But if they learn those sounds where, you know, in the midst of being highly unintelligible, that's not going to make a huge difference in terms of their overall intelligibility. Instead, we want to consider different linguistic principles. So I'll just highlight briefly two language universals that are often highlighted with regard to complexity target selection. So basically, complexity is based on language universals or, or laws. And what's so powerful about these is not only do they apply across all languages of the world, they also apply to every individual speaker. Here's one example. There's a universal that's been identified across languages that stipulates that affricates imply fricatives. And so that has two different meanings. So first, if we think of it from the perspective of an entire language, that means if a language has affricates, it also has fricatives. So one implies the presence of the other. But it doesn't go in both directions because a language could have fricatives, but it could also not have affricates. So the affricates are more complex and they are implying the presence of the fricatives. But we can also think of that regarding an individual speaker. So that means if a speaker produces an affricate in his or her system, that speaker also has at least one fricative. And so if a speaker potentially had difficulty with both of these sound classes by targeting affricates, we can predict change in fricatives as well. That's what makes it more efficient than teaching all the fricatives and then getting to the affricates. So that's one language universal. And then one other I just wanted to share briefly. There's also universal that has shown that three element clusters, and what I mean by that is a cluster like SPL, SKR, those kinds of things, they imply both two element clusters that do not have S, such as FL, THR, AW, etc., as well as two element clusters that include S, such as ST, SP, SM, and so on and so forth. So essentially this tells us that by teaching a three element cluster, we can also help kids to improve two element clusters with S and without S. So you can see that that would have a pretty big impact on the sound system. Yeah, it's been magical. Like, I feel like it's magic in my own practice. Like I started working on SKW with a student. Like that was one of our first targets. And then just watching the progress, it's like, it's magic. <laughs> just like seeing all the sounds. What you've done is great. And you probably came up with a very creative way of doing so. <laughs> yeah, we'll see about that. But yeah, it's been so amazing. And I'm just so excited to hear it broken down in a way because it's not an approach that we hear about as much despite all of that evidence, which is really interesting. And I think, you know, just from traveling around and meeting SLPs throughout the country, a lot of people have shared that in their graduate programs, a lot of programs are doing kind of a surface overview of many methodologies rather than going deeply into one or two. And I mean, I kind of understand that impulse on one hand, because you want people to be aware of these different methodologies, but then it really doesn't help us to be truly prepared or master them in order to apply them in the way that they need to be applied. I think many people are, are exposed to it just like in a textbook as you know, one out of 20 methodologies. 
when in fact, I think it would be better to prepare people for our profession to go deeply into at least a few, be aware of them. Yeah, like the top three with the most evidence. Right. And how to do it would be helpful too. Just some Absolutely. Ideas. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. So amazing. So what types of students would benefit from this approach or who might not be a good fit? Sure. Well, I think really the principles apply to all children with phonological disorders. And so that could be kids who are monolingual, multilingual, kids with concomitant language impairment. But as I shared earlier, SOPs in our district, not just me, but multiple people have applied this with kids with autism, with Down syndrome, kids who stutter, because essentially every speaker has a rule governed sound system. So we all have these linguistic rules that are applying in our systems. And so we can leverage that to help us to identify ideal targets for each speaker. The other thing I, I wanted to mention about that is, you know, I think normative studies give us good information about which sounds are relatively early mastered versus later mastered. But I also think that some of the study data could be unintentionally misleading in that I think it's led us to kind of underestimate kids in terms of what they're prepared or what they're ready to learn because very young children produce clusters. There have been studies that show that two-year-olds produce clusters 50% of the time, and three-and-a-half-year-olds produce 75% of clusters accurately. So very young children are ready, and it's within the zone of proximal development for even young kids. And there was also a really cool cross-linguistic study from McLeod and Crow that just came out in the last six months and they looked across 27 languages, and they found that by age five, children produce 93% of consonants correctly. That's a lot. And so that means young kids are, are able to do that. But essentially, the sooner we can introduce complex clusters into the system, the better. And kids can really learn these targets with the right support. Now, one thing I, I didn't mention earlier when I was talking about three-element clusters, there is one caveat that research studies have identified is that to teach a three-element cluster, the child already needs to have both the second and third sounds in the phonemic inventory. So for instance, if we're going to teach SPL, both P and L need to be in the child's phonemic inventory, which means that the child not only produces the sounds, but can use them contrastively to help a listener understand. So like if a child said pink and think, that P and the TH sound are being used contrastively to help the listener understand the difference between a color and what we do with our brains. And so we would need to make sure that P is a singleton and L is a singleton were in the phonemic inventory. If not, that's a little too complex for that individual child and we go to the next best thing, which is a complex two-element cluster. But even if kids are not good candidates for three-element clusters, they are still good candidates for complex two-element clusters. Then there's no prior knowledge necessary for complex two-element clusters. So, so that's good news. But the one population I am more conservative with applying these principles for are kids with childhood apraxia of speech. So at this point, there are preliminary studies that show that they can be effective, but we need more evidence. And because this population needs such individualized and intensive support, I think we should go with kind of what the community has you know, the standard is at this point. But essentially, we know even for kids with apraxia that the intervention is all about moving through sounds. And so when you're teaching a cluster, it's about moving through consonant sounds or into the vowel. So it's still kind of in the same vein. I would feel better if there were a little more evidence at this point. But I have applied it with a couple of my students 
with apraxia and they've had good outcomes as well. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> that's good stuff. In your course, you go into a lot of detail, and I know this is another kind of big question, but sure. what are your best practices for like getting started with an evaluation? Sure. Well, I could probably talk for five hours just about this alone, but I'll try to focus on what really matters, kind of the big picture. First of all, we need an in-depth sample of both singletons and clusters in the target system. And I want to highlight standardized tests have a place. They do provide us a snapshot of the child's system, but they're not comprehensive enough to be the only evaluation tool because usually they only sample sounds once in each word position and they usually don't cover all of the cluster, not even half of the clusters. And so they really don't support strategic target selection. So we can think of them as a piece of the puzzle, but we need other tests or probes to supplement it to really be able to characterize a child's sound system. So what I would suggest, there are several in-depth, independent samples that people could access. One is a probe that I created. It's called the In-Depth Phonological Assessment, the IPA for short. And I called it the IPA because we need another <laughs> field. And because we use IPA transcription when we're transcribing, and then we could celebrate with an IPA beer after it's all over if we want to. But at this point, the IPA, the target words, so the transcription forms are on SLPATH for people to freely download. The pictures for the target words are not there. And it's just kind of a long story why, why not. But I do want to tell you about two other probes that are available where the pictures are available. So um, Jessica Barlow from San Diego State has allowed me to offer on SLPATH. It's called the Little Peep. And PEEP stands for Protocol for the Evaluation of English Monotactics. And it is a pretty in-depth probe. And it might be, I know that it's, it's longer than the IPA, but it provides really in-depth information about a child's sound system. One other freely available probe is from Holly Storkel. She created a clusters probe and a probe for singletons that focus on complex singletons. So what she wanted to do was focus on the sounds that kids are most likely to have an error. So like her sample is not heavy on PBTV, but it is heavy on KG, LR, and some of those later master type sounds. So that would be a great supplement to a Goldman Fristow or another kind of standardized test. But of course, I, I do want to highlight if, if a child is bilingual, we do want to sample across both languages whenever possible. Unfortunately, these days, there are many free probes available online, including Dr. Barlow's Spanish probe, which is on SLPATH. But there are also several probes available through Sharon McLeod's website. She links to several free probes. And I just discovered a few months ago, there's a new website. It's called Speakaboo. It's speakaboo.io. And they have lost the exact number in my brain, but it's something like 20 free probes of other languages. And they also have it where you, they have a native speaker, a video of the native speaker producing the words. So, you know, I would feel comfortable as a monolingual SLP recording a child and then comparing it to see if it's the same or different from the adult model. And so it really could empower us to, to look at the, the child's other language. So some really cool things are available for those purposes. I can tell you about a few other things if you'd like. Yeah, go for it, Cheryl. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> okay, so we also want to consider stimulability. 
And so a, a common phrase that is used in phonological analysis is in or out sound. So in being sounds that either singletons or clusters a child produced at least twice independently. So for stimulability tasks, we won't be sampling the in sounds because obviously they're already stimulable because they're in. So what we would focus on for a stimulability task would be out singletons and out clusters, or sp specifically out singletons for this example. But Glassby and Stolgammon really came up with a cool way to look at stimulability. And it's really changed how I, I view things because when I was in graduate school, if a child didn't produce a sound, the way that I was trained to elicit the sound was let's say that they don't produce esh in the sample. So I'd say to the child, can you say shh? And if the child said shh, I would consider it to be stimulable. Glassby and Stolgammon take it a little bit further because they want to see not only can the child produce the sound in isolation, but also in syllables with the E, ah, and oo vowels. And the idea behind that is E, ah, and oo are different places, so front, back, high, low. And you can also see that if a child pairs one back vowel with a back sound, is that facilitative? So you can get a better sample of what the child can, can truly do. Furthermore, you're allowed to provide help. So you can say to them, like if you're trying to elicit L, you want to put your tongue up on the bumps and let it drop. You know, so you can see what they can do with just a tiny bit of support. And if they can respond to that with, you know, in the midst of this dynamic task, that says that they have a lot more potential or a lot more stimulability than a child who, even given that, wouldn't be able to produce it. So it tells us a lot more about what's stimulable versus what is not stimulable. And so it's basically, it's a, giving us a richer picture of, of modifiability and just seeing what a child can do with just a little bit of help. And so if you wanted to see the examples of these stimulability tasks, they are in SLPATH, there's one in English and one in Spanish. And so of course the one in Spanish only has Spanish sounds. I also wanna highlight a few other tasks that I think are important. We definitely want a conversation sample as well as a single word test because in a conversation sample, it gives us a better sense of overall intelligibility, vowels, velocity, rate, those kinds of things that we wouldn't be able to pick up on in single words because you're just saying one word at a time. You're not going to really be able to hear kind of the cadence of, of the child's productions. So that would give us a sense of that. And usually what I do with a conversation sample is I usually just describe it or just use it for just kind of a baseline to kind of hear a sample of where the child is in conversation. Only occasionally do I actually go through and do a 50 utterance sample where I score the percentage of intelligibility. I do think that's valuable sometimes, but I don't know that it, it's going to yield us information that's going to help us with target selection, which is the ultimate goal of a good assessment. But some examples of helpful tasks for conversation samples. As we know, we've all probably encountered kids who are telling us something and we want for the world to understand what they're saying and we just can't catch it for whatever reason because we don't have a shared context. So it's helpful to set ourselves up so we have that shared context. So wordless books like the Frog Mercer Mayer books, also this beautiful black dog called Carl. So there's a bunch of wordless books so the child could tell the story about Carl and his adventures. Or we could have toys with different target sounds, you know, so that way we know kind of what the child's talking about. So I think those are some other things that we want to consider. But then just a few more tasks, if that's all right. So there are three more tasks that I like to 
highly recommend because they can really help us with differential diagnosis. So a study from 2015 from Murray and her colleagues, they looked at, I don't remember, multiple tasks that would help to differentiate between kids with apraxia versus kids with phonological disorders only. So they wanted to see which tasks could help really to differentiate the two groups. And there were two tasks in particular that stood out. The first was a polysyllable task. So they elicited, I think it was 25 different polysyllable words. And they were not only looking at the accuracy of the sounds in the polysyllables, but they were also looking at stress patterns. They were looking to see if kids deleted syllables or not, and different kinds of things like that that would be more likely for kids with apraxia to have those prosodic kind of errors versus kids with phonological patterns. So that was a very valuable task. The other one they found to be most informative was an oral mechanism exam. So looking at non-speech movements, including diadokinetic tasks, even though that's not really non-speech, but there was a big difference in the performance between on the non-speech and diadokinetic tasks for kids with apraxia versus kids with phonological disorders only. But one other task that I like to throw in to help with differential diagnosis is we know that kids with apraxia do better with well-rehearsed sequences. So things they've said a lot are usually a lot clearer than things they're saying spontaneously. So I like to ask kids to produce automatic sequences like the alphabet or count or a song and hear what it sounds like to have them do that versus a spontaneous conversation. And it's been remarkable because I've only had maybe five kids in my whole career with apraxia, but one in particular, when she was in fourth grade, when I was doing her triennial, she had made a ton of progress. She was maybe 80 to 90% intelligible in conversation, but you know, still definitely having some motor planning issues. But the, the clarity of her counting from one to 100 versus having a spontaneous conversation was remarkable. I mean, it just really jumped out. And it's not that I needed that for differential diagnosis at that point, but it was just really interesting to kind of see that. But the last thing I wanted to highlight is we also want to consider the impact of the speech sound disorder on the child and his or her life. And so there's some really valuable tools that we could look at for this as well. This is another one is from Sharon McLeod. And by the way, Sharon McLeod's one of my phonology heroes. That's why you hear me saying her name so frequently. It's called the Speech Participation Assessment of Activity of Children. She calls it the SPA-C for short. And it's a series of questions for the child, the parent, uh, teacher, sibling, friends. And so that way you can have some sense of what the child thinks about his or her own speech, how he or she feels about different talking situations, what the parent observes in terms of confidence or frustration or strengths in general. And so it can be really beneficial to, to gather that information. And then Sharon McLeod also has a tool, it's called the Intelligibility and Context Scale, called the ICS. And it's a very elegant, simple tool. It asks the parent seven questions on a Likert scale. So one being never, five being always. So the first question is, how much do you understand your child? And then the next one is, how much do immediate family members understand? How much do extended family? So it goes through seven different listening groups. And Sharon McLeod and her colleagues have looked at this across different languages and cultures, and they found that the parent reports are pretty accurate. It doesn't allow us to calculate a percentage of intelligibility. So if they're, you know, getting three, which is, you know, an average of three, which corresponds to sometimes being understood across different groups, it doesn't mean that it's 50% intelligibility. 
but it does give us some sense of how much the child is understood and how this might be impacting the child's life. I do want to mention that all of the tasks that I described here, there is a report template on SLPATH, a phonological report template, and all of the tasks are included in there. So if you wanted to see an example of a write-up, it's available for people to download. That is amazing. Like you just planned out my whole evaluation. <laughs> so good. And then I'll link to all of these different resources in Great. the show notes. So it's easy to find them. So helpful. This question is pretty much an entire course as well. But can you give us some initial tips on identifying targets for intervention? Sure. Well, it all starts with an in-depth assessment. So we need all that rich data of looking at singletons and clusters and so then what we want to do is an independent analysis. So looking at what sounds the child produced to communicate. Now, this is different than the kind of relational analysis approach, which is kind of comparing the, the child's production to the adult target. And I understand, I mean, there is a reason to do that. We do want to identify different patterns and things like that more for descriptive reasons. And, you know, just because if we can tell parents or let's say a teacher, oh, this child is deleting S from words, that might help them figure out what the child's trying to say in the moment versus not sharing this kind of information. But the, the tricky thing with the patterns or the process analyses is that they don't really tell us what to target. And they can sometimes send us in the wrong direction. So for instance, a very common example, let's say a child demonstrates fronting, even a lot of the time, maybe not all the time but the child produces K and G in a few words. So if we were to then target K or G to address the fronting, we do want the child to learn K or G, but that's not gonna have a big impact on the system. And so the patterns I think are more for descriptive purposes than for identifying targets. But the bigger picture is we, we wanna look at the information we have from the probe data and identify the child's phonetic inventory. So that's which sounds the child produced. And one thing that's important to consider is kids do not restrict themselves to the target language sounds. And a good example of that, and I think many of us have encountered, is like, for instance, if a child is trying to say beach and the child says beach is an, is an affricate, it's just an alveolar affricate. So we'd want to give credit to that child for producing that because that child knows something about affricates. He or she doesn't yet know about the English affricate, but still we want to give credit for that. And so that's one thing we want to keep in mind. We want to identify the child's phonemic inventory. So which sounds the child is using contrastedly. So earlier I used the example of pink versus think. So that means the child is using the P sound versus the PH sound to show the listener the difference in meaning. So we want to look at that. We also want to identify a cluster inventory, stimulability like, like we talked about earlier. But once we have that information, we can utilize this to select targets. And so really what we want to do is introduce these complex structures into the system to support intelligibility. And so I'd really like to encourage SLPs to not be cluster phobic because clusters are great targets and there are many ways to, to go about addressing this. Essentially, and there's a document on SLPATH that we can link to, it's called the Cluster Target Selection Document. Uh, the first choice to help kids learn broadly about the sound system is three element clusters, such as SPL, SKW, STR, SPR, and SKR. I think I, I don't know if I got every one of those right there. And so that's our first choice. 
But again, the caveat is the child must already have both the second and third sounds in the phonemic inventory. And that's true for a lot of kids. And the two three element clusters that are most likely to be viable targets are SKW, because kids will often have K and W in their phonemic inventories, or SPL, because P and L might be or often in a child's phonemic inventory. Of course, our beloved friend R prohibits many kids from working on SKR, STR, et cetera. But more often than not, and I've been able to choose SKR several times in the last few years, and I've, I love SKR. So it does happen even in kids with highly unintelligible speech. So it is out there. So there are some great SKR activities and books that I don't want to overlook. So that's really kind of our first choice if that's viable for kids. But if they do not have the second and third sounds, in their phonemic inventory. Then we go on to the next best thing, which is a complex two element cluster. And essentially linguistic principles, I won't go into all the background, have identified five complex two element clusters that we wanna highlight. So that would be FL, FR, THR, SL, and SR. And it's ideal according to research that we choose among those two element complex clusters it's ideal if the child does not yet produce either of the two sounds in the cluster. So for instance, if FL is a good target, or for FL to be an ideal target, both F and L should be out of the system and non-stimulable. Because not only are you going to teach kids new sound, you're also going to teach them the sequence and how to put them together. But of course, we always want to consider the child in front of us and different characteristics. So sometimes when I've had kids who get easily frustrated or kind of shut down if something's a little more challenging, what I might choose is, let's say that the child is stimulable for F, but non-stimulable for L, then I'll teach an FL cluster. And so the F will give them a sense of success and the L will be a little more challenging and then I'm going to support them a lot. And, you know, one other thing that I want to highlight about this target selection is teaching complex clusters, we're giving kids a lot of support. This isn't about frustrating kids by any means. And there are a lot of ways we can teach kids how to blend sounds together. We could use principles from reading. So like when kids are learning how to blend sounds in words, we can use similar kind of strategies to teach them how to produce them as well. By using those principles, so again, first choice, three element clusters, second choice, complex two element clusters, what I usually recommend is choosing multiple targets. So that way we have different options because we usually see kids in, the, in groups and it's nice to have some different options. Like maybe you start all the kids, maybe they all have a common SKW cluster, but then their second cluster is different. So you start them all together with the first one, and then maybe you do different ones once they kind of know how speech services work, that kind of thing. So that's the gist of how target selection works. Yeah, so helpful. And I know that starting with those clusters can be a little scary, but it totally works. Like people around the world are doing it. <laughs> There's lots of good evidence for taking that step into the unknown. So thanks for walking us through that. Sure. And I do want to mention one other thing. The, the advantage or the way we can use teaching three element clusters as a strength is because the child already has both the second and third sounds in their phonemic inventory, they already have at least some knowledge of the sounds. So you can take that as a strength and then build on that. And the other cool thing is to teach SKW, they just need to have K and W in their phonemic inventory. They do not already need to have the KW cluster. 
they already have some knowledge of PNW, use that build on and say, look, you can already say these sounds, now I'm gonna help you to say them together. And so I think that's a way to approach it as you know, using that as a strength. This is again, another huge question, but do you have suggestions in getting started with goal writing if you're using this approach? Sure, absolutely. And there's another document on SLPath, it's called Sample Chronological Goals. But the tricky thing about this kind of methodology in terms of goal writing is the nature of language universals. So earlier I talked about how working on affricates can help kids to also improve fricatives. The tricky thing is we can make that prediction. So we can say that teaching affricates will help kids learn fricatives, but we can't predict which specific fricatives they're going to improve. And so I wouldn't want us to write a goal predicting that these fricatives will improve when in fact other fricatives improved. And so then it's looking like they didn't achieve the goal. So we need another way to kind of approach this. What I would recommend would be a few different ways of thinking. So we wanna recommend goals that kind of capture learning across the system. So not just about the treated, but more importantly about the system because the end goal of treatment is to help kids become more intelligible, not to learn individual sounds or clusters. We can think of the cluster target as the vehicle for driving the change, but it's not the ultimate goal that that's all we want the child to learn. Some examples of ways to approach this is we could write first a goal to add new singletons or clusters. So you could say something like the child will produce, you know, and I often will write eight or 10 new singletons or clusters in single words on probes administered three times per year. And the exact number of singletons or clusters that I identified depends on different factors. And this, this is in the document as well. If you have kids who have more non or more stimulable out sounds, you're going to go higher. If you have kids who have a more robust inventory, you're going to go higher. If we have kids who have other disabilities, so let's say kids are working on speech and language, I might go a little bit lower because we're going to need targeting both at the same time. We also want to consider social emotional factors or motivation. So all of those are going to be important considerations. So that's the first one is adding new singletons or clusters. The next one could be to just increase accuracy. So you, what we can do is calculate percent consonants correct across the entire probe sample. And let's say at baseline it's 40%, and then the next time it's 55%, then the next time it's 70%. So you could say that the child will increase his or her percent consonants correct to, I don't remember, 75 to 80%. It just depends on where the child starts, of course, in single words on this probe. If the percent constant is correct is increasing, that means the child is learning more broadly about the sound system. So that'll kind of capture that. But one last option could be to use a visual analog scale. This is a new way of taking data from Munson and colleagues. And this gets away from the historical practice in our field of just doing plus or minus for a target sound. So what he and his colleagues suggested was to do more of a scale from one to five. And the example I like to start with is looking at R. So if we are trying to work with a child on R, rather than doing plus minus, because with, especially with R, everything is a minus until it's a plus. <laughs> and so it's not really capturing the progress that the child is making versus one, two, three, four, five. A one would be a child who says wub for rub. So it's a W for R, it's a pure substitution. And then a five would be rub for rub. But then two, three, and four are that in-between. And I think we've all heard those kids are like so close. It's like right there, and, and that's a four probably. 
or if you can tell it's got a little bit of our coloring, but it's not, you know, a true R, so that's more of a three. And so we could use this visual analog scale data also for goal writing. So we could say, you know, at, at baseline, because a lot of kids at baseline for SBL, for instance, will produce a W. <laughs> and so for that scale, we might do one through seven. So, you know, they're starting with an average of one out of seven. And so we'd say, you know, by this time next year, they're going to do six and a half out of seven, you know, so which is essentially, I don't know, like in the 90% area. So that way we can really see some change over time. A couple other little things that I wanted to highlight about writing goals and just what we might see as a result of that is the kids in the original complexity studies, as well as the kids in our district, just with our anecdotal data, many of them did not generalize the treated target to untreated words on the probes. That's just a, a very common phenomenon. But as I shared earlier, the target is kind of the vehicle that drives the change. It's not the ultimate goal to, I mean, we want them to learn SPL, of course, but not every child will generalize. But if they learn more broadly about the sound system, that's the much bigger goal than learning SPL. And the one other phenomenon that commonly occurred in both the studies and our data is kids will often improve singletons and clusters, but not necessarily at the same time. So if we re-administer probes every three to four months, it might be the first time through there, they're like, I'm going to pay attention to singletons and add a bunch to my system. But then the next round, they're going to be like, I'm now, and now I'm more interested in clusters. So I'm going to add some clusters this time. So if you see that kind of thing occur, it's nothing to be discouraged about. Yeah, so helpful. So many good tips. Do you have any suggestions? Like, I feel like I'm ready. I've got my evaluation. I know what my targets are. I'm going to write some good goals. Do you have any tips for getting started with treatment and getting organized there? As I shared earlier, if we can choose multiple clusters for kids in a group, that's going to give us some flexibility in terms of maybe you start everybody with SPL or everybody with SKW before you would move on to another cluster. And that's going to make it easier for choosing books that uh, feature complex clusters or activities that feature different complex clusters. I also like to make sure that kids have their own cards with the targets, so either ones that I have from other sources or, or ones that they draw themselves, because then they kind of own those cards and it's there's some ownership there, as opposed to here are just the words over here and they're just on these cards. I want them to be their cards. And so that way it's more meaningful to them, especially if kids like to draw. I, I love to have them draw it because then their version of Splat is going to be different than another kid's version of Splat. And they're really entertaining little pictures too. The other thing is I tend to stay away from games just because the focus goes on the game rather than what they're actually trying to learn. But instead I try to focus on fun books and activities and that way we're getting some meaningful practice. So I've become kind of obsessed with books that feature complex clusters, so I call it my own little clusters collection. And so two of my favorite books, one is from Mo Willems, who does the Piggy and Elephant books. There's one called Watch Me Throw the Ball that has a lot of THR words, and it's just a delight. And the nice thing about that book is you could also change, so let's say you have a group where some of the kids are working on THR, some are working on FL. For the THR kids, they can say throw, through, et cetera, but the FL kids could say fling or flung, you know, so you can always kind of modify it for an individual within the group. And another favorite book of mine is Mr. Strong from the Mr. Men series, those little square books with the different characters. And in Mr. Strong, I know they use the word strong 37 times, so there's a lot of uh, meaningful 
models of it. And then the book is hilarious. And there's a video on YouTube. It's a narrated video by this great British broadcaster. And it's just hilarious. I have to confess, I've watched the video on my own without kids sometimes because it's really funny. But there are also many activities that feature complex clusters. So I don't know if you've ever seen splat balls before, but you can throw them against a whiteboard or or like more of a metallic type of door and they just really splat against it. And kids will work on SPL forever with that. Or those little wind-up animals where you wind it up and then they flip, like little flipping frogs, they've got pretty much every animal. You could do that for FL, for flip, flop, fly, you know, so you could, there's so many different ways you could apply that. But the other thing I would really recommend is we want to make sure there's a solid foundation at the word level and make sure that kids are producing strong production of whatever the target is as soon as possible before we would jump into kind of mixed practice where we're using it in a sentence or in a story or, or during a game or I'm not during a game, but during like a more fun kind of movement type of activity. But once kids have that strong foundation at the word level, I kind of have this mantra that I like to follow that I want kids practicing in different places with different people for different purposes. So not just the SLP room, even though it is a magical place, we want them practicing outside. We want, you know, if we can go in the classroom and have them show off for a friend or for their teacher or make a little video of them, but then we send a link to their parents so they can see, because we don't want it to just be what, what we're saying. We want them to use it with different people. We can also play around with other conditions that kids will encounter in daily communication. So we know that kids aren't just sitting straight up in a chair with a piece of paper when they're talking. So we need to kind of create conditions that are more like what they'll encounter. So that means, for instance, we might have them doing different actions while they practice, like doing jumping jacks while they're saying a sentence or dancing while they're saying a phrase or something like that, where they still have to self-monitor the accuracy of their production or you can have them play around with different emotions. I guess this is my long way of saying, I think if we can have a core kind of group of activities that help kids to really focus on their target sounds and then get into the more meaningful production, like with these different movement activities and things like that, that can go a long way. And I don't think we need a ton of different activities and kids are just so thrilled to, to do a lot of things over and over again, especially if, you, if we find the right activity. Especially if we're having fun with it, I think they they can do the same thing over and over again, and they'll be totally happy. I'm curious too, how do you move through the target? So like if you're starting with SPL, do you stick with that for a long time or do you move between different ones? How does that look? This is more, there's more of an art to this than like an exact amount of time, but I typically stay with a target cluster until the child can do it pretty easily in sentences or conversation where you can just tell that it's mostly automatic. I want it to become essentially pretty easy or just fluent for them. And, and again, that means not only in my room, but also walking to and from their classroom, at the lunch area, other places like that. So I would say at a minimum, I'd want them to be strong in words and sentences, so 80% or higher, just so we've got that foundation, because that's what's really going to kind of induce that big change. But I do want to mention in the original complexity studies, they only taught at the word level. And again, that was to control for variables because it gets a lot crazier when you get up to sentence and conversation than just studying that kind of thing. But word level was sufficient to create these significant changes in their, their system. So 
some of our SLPs feel more comfortable just staying with the word level, and that's fine. But I think we can still expose kids to books and other things that model these words at a higher level. And so I would kind of do that before I would move on to the next cluster. I know it varies depending on each student, but I think that making progress on a cluster can sometimes take a little bit longer than on a singleton. So do you have like a range of how much time you typically spend on, like if you're starting with a three element? And I know there's lots and lots of variables here. Well, I would say some kids will get it within a session or two, and that's not as common, but Mm -hmm. I would say it's not uncommon to take four to five weeks to really become solid. And some kids really need kind of baby steps. So what I often do if I'm teaching a three-element cluster is because they already have the second and third sounds in their at least some knowledge of them, I start by having them blend those two sounds. And I make sure that is really strong and automatic before I ever start to add S into the mix. So if I'm teaching SKW, we make sure KW is completely solid before we start adding S into it. And so I think there are different ways like that that we can scaffold that will make them uh, successful and have that strong foundation. And if we jump, if we jump straight into all three sounds at the same time, it may not help them to pay attention to all the different sounds or be as precise with the different sounds. And so I think it's just a matter of being creative with different things. And I've also just through trial and error figured out that a lot of times we want to get, have the kids get ready for the second sound before they even say the first sound. Like for instance, if we were teaching FL, I had a kid who, like a lot of kids, would say instead of fly, it was fly, lie, so they insert that schwa. And, that, and that's very, very common. And so what we figured out together was I could have him put his tongue up in his mouth, you know, getting ready for L, freeze it, and then his teeth on his lip, and then say fluff. And so that way he was already set up for the second sound and that co-articulation was already kind of half in process before he even began the F. And I also learned through trial and error that I, I'm way too verbose, as you probably already heard today, but I realized with some kids, I was giving them this full-blown explanation. And what I realized I needed to do was just break it down. So now it's more like tongue up, freeze it, teeth on lip, fluff. <laughs> you know, or even just a picture, like I'll just even point and stop talking just so the kid can focus on what he or she is trying to accomplish. I love those tricks. So good. Then the last piece, but any tips for monitoring progress? In terms of monitoring progress, I look for kind of three types of data. The first is how is the child doing with the treated words and targets? Like is the child getting to the point or from where, you know, there's a lot of imitation, there's a lot of placement, there's a lot of cueing, to independence, either at the word level, sentence level, or higher. And so this is where we could use the visual analog scale again. And so what I like to try to do, and I I don't always do this with complete fidelity just because of the chaos that is working in the schools. Let's say I work with a group of four kids, and so I see them twice a week. What I try to do is at the beginning of a session each time is I just have one kid come over And then I use the visual analog scale. So I see how the child does with producing his eight words independently and I score it. And then we go into intervention. And so the next session, the second child comes up, I listen to his eight words, you know, so each, basically every two weeks, I have this really rich data for each child. And it ends up taking a minute or two at the beginning of the session. And then over time, I've got a lot of data. 
and we see this progression from ones to threes or fives or whatever target number is. So that can be very rich information to either include in a goal that we've written or to share with parents with an IEP or, you know, just to show some change over time. But then the other big piece of data that you referenced was I like to re-administer the probes every, you know, three times a year, because that's really looking at the untreated sounds at the child's sound system. To, so to see what kind of changes occurred. And that's going to give us a sense of what singletons and clusters have been added. That's going to help us to understand why the intelligibility is increasing and so on. And then the, the third type of data is just more observations. Is the child showing more confidence, more independence? Does the child understand how the sessions kind of work to go get, like I always have kids get their folders and they get warmed up right away when they get there so they know that they're working, you know, or doing something from the moment we, we get there. I also, of course, will check in with parents just to see, you know, is, how's your child doing with talking? You know, is your child showing more confidence or, or any frustration or anything else like that? I also talk with teachers, you know, just in passing, nothing formal, but just in passing. But one of my favorite indicators of progress is when kids start getting in trouble in class for talking too much. That to me is the most robust kind of outcome. But those are some of the things that I'm looking at in terms of progress monitoring. Yeah, thank you for that. And thank you so much for all of your time. I feel like we just got so much helpful information. If SLPs are wanting to learn more, where can they go? So they can go to my website, slpath.com, and we do have over 250 free resources, many of which I referenced during the podcast, and then we do offer three online courses for AFSHA CEUs and then one additional course on a service delivery model. There's a lot of learning that we can do in our pajamas and spread it out rather than everything at the same 10 hours or six hours at a time, so it's a lot nicer to kind of spread out the learning a bit. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.